Last week, we learned there are quite a few serious downsides to the drug chloromycetin, including aplastic anemia, a serious bone marrow disorder, and gray baby syndrome, a deadly side effect that can afflict infants given the drug. Ironically, all this was not the tipping point for change in regulations. Instead, the first close, skeptical examinations of the pharmaceutical companies were regarding their business practices, specifically with regards to their pricing and alleged collusion. Basically, the drug companies stood accused of working together and unfairly inflating their prices, instead of competing with each other as they're supposed to in a free market. The markup on most drugs at the time was absurdly high. One example I found cost about 14 cents to produce per unit, but was sold for $15, an approximate 10,000% markup. Most companies don't see markups past 100% on their products today, and that's even on the high side. So all this definitely raised red flags. In September 1959, Senator Estes Kefauver of Tennessee announced that the Antitrust and Monopoly Subcommittee would hold hearings investigating the drug companies. I had never heard of Kefauver before, and I'm guessing you hadn't either, but he was very big news at the time. During congressional hearings, he became famous for questioning mobsters while in the Senate. In 1952, he ran for president, and in 1956, for vice president. Kefauver was well known as someone who did not get along well with big business, and so this move was very on brand. For the next 10 months, Kefauver oversaw the questioning, which, again, was initially aimed at huge profit margins being problematic. Although that was where they started, soon they were discussing intellectual property reform. Kefauver took serious issue with the fact that some drugs were being given patents and trademarks without evidence that they, well, actually worked, or that they were even new drugs at all, which seems kind of like common sense as a standard for what should be given patents and trademarks. Over the course of these hearings, a slew of witnesses from pharmaceutical companies were called to testify. One of them was Harry Lloyd, the once salesman and now CEO of Park Davis. He was called to account for the cost of chloromycetin and with how it had been promoted. He came off as very arrogant and argued a whole lot of semantics with Kefauver, which definitely did not look good. Most of the witnesses floundered in general, and painted a generally dismal picture of the pharmaceutical industry and its representatives. Haskell Weinstein, a former medical director of Pfizer, was quoted saying, As a physician, I blush with shame at the quality of some of the studies done by my physician brethren, end quote. And he pointed out that the FDA was not actually required to document efficacy, a common misconception at the time. We take this for granted today, and as it turns out, some people did even before it was actually true. In September 1960, the hearings were done, but the topics of drug pricing and monopolies had fallen to the wayside. Instead, the committee pushed to increase the authority of the FDA, requiring proof of efficacy and safety of all new drugs. In 1961, Senator Kefauver introduced Senate Bill 1522 to enact these measures into law. The next seven months were spent adjusting the bill. No surprise, the FDA was a big supporter of increasing its own power. Who would have thought? What was surprising was that many of the largest pharmaceutical firms, excluding Park Davis, probably because Lloyd was still ticked off at Kefauver, were supporters. I think there is some logic to the support, though, since these big pharmaceutical companies might have reduced competition, if only the drugs that actually worked were allowed to be sold. Drugs that work tend to require a lot of research and a lot of investment, which big companies can best finance. 
it was probably still in self-interest. Meanwhile, in opposition was the American Medical Association, or the AMA for short. If you'll recall last week, I explained that at the time, physicians were very adamant that they have full autonomy, and that still applies here. The AMA objected to the idea that anyone could possibly know drug efficacy besides the physicians themselves. Despite a lot going for the Senate bill, including bipartisan support, it was slowly being dismantled in committee. But as I mentioned last week, one last tragedy will change the outcome, worse even than aplastic anemia and chloromycetin's link. It wouldn't surprise me if you've actually heard of the drug called thalidomide, so well known as the tragedy we're going to talk about. It was known in the U.S. as Distival, and it was a useful anti-nausea drug, already widely used in Europe at the time. In 1960, the company Richardson Merrill was trying to bring thalidomide to market in the U.S., and had placed an application with the FDA. They expected a fast turnaround given the aforementioned use in Europe. At the time, pharma companies were allowed to contact the FDA reviewers directly, and so they pressed one Dr. Frances Oldham Kelsey for approval. She was a veteran pharmaceutical reviewer at this point, and so was not swayed, and requested studies on animals, toxicity, the effects on pregnant women, since it was intended for use as a cure for morning sickness, among many other documents. Richardson Merrill instead sent anecdotal evidence, and what Kelsey described as, quote, an interesting collection of meaningless pseudoscientific jargon apparently intended to impress chemically unsophisticated readers, end quote. A sick scientist burn if I've ever heard one. Every 60 days, Kelsey sent another letter to Richardson Merrill because the way the FDA worked at the time was that if a reviewer failed to act on an application within 60 days, it was an automatic approval. Richardson Merrill never provided any better evidence because it didn't exist. In November 1961, about a year later and many, many letters from Dr. Kelsey later, Richardson Merrill began to receive reports from Europe of Phocomelia, known colloquially as seal limb, a birth defect that caused stunted arms and legs, fused fingers, and death, with mortality rates for the condition at about 50%. Before thalidomide, Phocomelia was incredibly rare, with less than a thousand cases worldwide. From 1954 to 1959, eight German pediatric clinics had reported no cases of phocomelia. In 1959, they had 12. The next year, in 1960, that jumped to 83, and in 1961, that number jumped further to 302. All the mothers of the deformed children had taken thalidomide, and it was quickly determined to be the culprit. By the time the last exposed mothers gave birth, there were over 10,000 infants afflicted by this terrible birth defect because of thalidomide. Thanks to the watchful efforts of Dr. Kelsey, fewer than 30 of those cases occurred in the United States. Those 30 cases still only happened because Richardson Merrill had been giving physicians the drug for, quote, investigational use, which was not just legal but actually encouraged at the time. When the scandal broke and the application was cancelled, Dr. Kelsey requested information on which physicians still might have thalidomide. The company, despite distributing 2.5 million thalidomide pills to over a thousand doctors around the country, had no idea where the drugs went. Mothers who were given the drug hadn't even been informed that it wasn't approved yet, and we were incredibly lucky that Kelsey had been vigilant and bright, or the same tragedy of Europe would have happened as widespread in the United States as well. 
In 1962, the Washington Post published a front-page story titled, Heroin of FDA Keeps Bad Drug Off-Market, really bringing to light the near-miss and giving ample deserved credit to Dr. Kelsey. She was even awarded the President's Award for Distinguished Federal Civilian Service by John F. Kennedy. Senator Kefauver praised her, saying she possessed, quote, a rare combination of factors, a knowledge of medicine, a knowledge of pharmacology, a keen intellect, an inquiring mind, the imagination to connect apparently isolated bits of information, and the strength of character to resist strong pressures, end quote. I simply cannot agree more. The good press for the FDA and the bad press for drug companies helped bring Senate Bill 1522 back to life, and it passed the House and the Senate on August 23rd. John Kennedy signed it into law a few weeks later, on October 10th, 1962, as, quote, an act to protect the public health by amending the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act to assure the safety, effectiveness, and reliability of drugs, end quote. It required any new drugs to be certified not only as safe, but also as effective, and also mandated that review processes be applied to any drugs assigned between 1938 and 1963, before the passing of this bill. This review process would come to be known as DESI for short, standing for Drug Efficacy Study Implementation. The process began in 1966 and would label each drug with one of six categories for each ailment. The six options included effective, probably effective, possibly effective, effective but not for all recommended uses, ineffective as a fixed combination, and finally, straight up ineffective. For example, chloramphenicol was designated probably effective for meningeal infections, which are rather serious, but in contrast was labeled effective but not for all recommended uses due to the risk of aplastic anemia for any other ailment. This new bar for effectiveness did its work, and among the 16,000 drugs approved between 1938 and 1962, several hundred were removed from the market. In 1963, Dr. Kelsey was still making big changes at the FDA, and was placed in charge of the Investigational Drug Branch, nowadays known as the Office of Scientific Investigations. Her job was to turn the vague language from the law, which required substantial evidence of effectiveness that relied on adequate and well-controlled studies, into true and actually useful definitions. As expected, Kelsey completely reinvented the process of drug approval. At this time, even though Bradford Hill decades ago had demonstrated the benefit of randomized, properly blinded experiments, about half of most clinical trials in the 60s still didn't even have control groups. Dr. Kelsey was going to do her best to change all of that. She proposed a number of sweeping changes, some of which may be familiar to any listeners with pharmacology background. New applications for drugs would require a dossier with information about animal testing, the manufacturing process, and the mechanism by which any new drug worked. At any institution where studies took place, an independent committee would have to approve the study, making sure it had more benefits than risks, that distress for subjects was minimized as much as possible, and that participants gave informed consent, a relatively new concept at the time that basically just means patients know what they're getting into. Kelsey also proposed a new three-phase clinical trial structure. Phase 1 would be used to determine human toxicity, where dozens of subjects were given higher and higher doses of the drug to establish a safe range. 
Phase 2 would increase the subjects to the hundreds and be used to demonstrate the therapeutic effect and compare the drug to existing treatment, or placebo if none yet existed. Finally, Phase 3 would establish the drug's value in practice, with safety, effectiveness, and dosing schedules all being investigated, but now with several thousand subjects. Bonus points in the approval process were given for better study design, including randomization and blinding. I'm certain Bradford Hill would have been proud. These new standards would change the medical industry dramatically, and shifted massive amounts of power from pharmaceutical companies to government regulators. Government regulators now had real ways to prevent drugs that shouldn't go to market from making it to the public. And on top of that, they had real, scientifically sound standards to compare new drugs with. Kelsey's work was a huge deal, but also did have a few drawbacks. In order to bring any drug to market now, there is now huge upfront cost of discovering and manufacturing drugs, but on top of that, a new heavy cost to testing. It changed the balance between risk and reward in searching for new treatments significantly, and tended to encourage investment only in treatments for large widespread problems in order to increase the chances of reward and return, whether it be better patient outcomes, profit, or both. Chloramphenicol's failures, in combination with the thalidomide scare, some coincidental politics, and one Dr. Francis Kelsey, pushed the FDA toward what it is today and changed the standards of drug testing in the United States permanently. These frameworks more or less persist to this day. And next week, we'll speed through a few decades and bring our overarching antibiotic narrative into the present era. Like always, thanks to my editor, Jojo Tang, our cover artist, Angie Lee, and Muse Open for our theme music. If you can, please throw a rating or review my way, or a like on any of our social media, or email me. I'd love to hear from you. Also, just a heads up, I'm currently in the process of moving across about half of the United States, so bear with me. It's possible I may not get the next episode out on time for Monday, due to lack of consistent internet access while I'm driving, and time. But I will still do my best to make it happen. Thanks for listening.